Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. I'm your host, Heather Stark. We've been doing the show for quite some time. And, you know, I've kind of gotten in the routine of saying we have a difficult topic this week because so many of them are difficult. I think this topic this week is also a pretty tough one uh, from a number of different angles. We have with us Samantha Lee from the National Advocates for Pregnant Women. Thank you for joining us, Samantha. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I originally contacted you to talk about a particular case that I had read about in the news and, and, and in several places. It's the case of Chelsea Becker. Let's talk about that case to start with, and then we'll go into more generalities about this, what, what this means culturally, socially um, for women. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the Chelsea Becker case? Yes, thank you. So Chelsea Becker is a woman in California who is facing a murder charge for experiencing a stillbirth. And she has been held in jail since November 2019, so almost 15 months now, on first $5 million and now $2 million bail. And all of this time is pre-trial during COVID and with all of the exposures of being in a jail during um, this pandemic for something that's not a crime, for experiencing a pregnancy loss. How could this happen? How could this be? And especially in California. I mean, I don't, I, I think I tend to, I may be, you know, terribly um, misinformed here, but I, I tend to think of these more as being maybe in somewhere in the deep South or someplace that has, you know, huge, huge uh, controversy where it comes to birth issues and, uh, you know, women's bodies rights and all that kind of stuff. How did this happen to poor Chelsea Becker? Yeah, so I do think that her case really highlights that this happens everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so in California, you know, Chelsea is charged with murder. And in California, the murder statute was expanded to include fetuses in 1970 in response to a really brutal attack on a pregnant woman by her ex. Um, she was beaten up and um, allegedly part of her ex's goal was to end her pregnancy with that assault. And um, the California legislature felt that a charge for assault was insufficient um, to um, reflect the gravity of that crime. And so chose to expand the murder statute to include fetuses in response to this, um, this event. And unfortunately we see um, across the country that any law that criminalizes the death of a fetus ultimately is always used to prosecute pregnant people themselves. Um, when they experience a stillbirth or um, the end of a pregnancy. Yeah, there's always a downside, isn't there? We, you know, I mean, I can think of a million examples, but we think we're doing doing something that's really good and wonderful and noble, but we can't possibly think of all the ramifications and how people will interpret that down the road. And that's when we get into controversy, um, you know, so. Yeah. In, in Chelsea's case, though, what was the trigger for the prosecutor to decide to go after Chelsea? Um, was, the, was there some sort of documentation from the hospital or was there some sort of allegation against her? What, I mean, women experience miscarriages every day um, and most of them are not ever brought up on murder charges. So there must have been something that triggered. What, what was it that set this whole ball rolling for uh, Chelsea? Yeah, I do just want to respond first to, and I, I apologize if you can hear my- Oh, sorry. I thought it was me, yes. Oh. <laughs> um, but I do just want to respond first that, yes, there are un unintended consequences to laws that we intend to help people, but I do think there's an easy response to this particular issue. We could design laws that are designed to protect pregnant people and who, that, for example, criminalize um, 
actions taken against pregnant people more than others. And that would create the same type of protection without causing the same um, problems for pregnant people themselves being prosecuted for those crimes. Um, I'm sure someone would find a way to twist that as well, <laughs> yeah. but it is a better formulation. Um, in terms of your question, yes. So um, the prosecutor in this case, Keith Fagundes, um, claims without um, evidence that um, Chelsea Becker's stillbirth was caused by methamphetamine use during her pregnancy. And we know that the evidence-based medical research does not support the contention that methamphetamine causes miscarriages or stillbirths. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, despite the many years of medical research on this issue, there's never been a causal link um, established between the use of criminalized controlled substances and pregnancy loss. Um, really, you know, the difference between risk factors, things like poverty, access to healthcare, and a stillbirth are risk factors might in, increase the likelihood of someone experiencing a stillbirth. But the risk factors, uh, so uh, forgive me for interrupting, but I, to me, this is like, what what century are we in? We have somebody who has, a woman, who has performed some sort of behavior that we deem unacceptable for a woman, especially a pregnant woman. So boy, we got to go after her. That's the way it sounds to me. Yeah, and every leading Every major medical association that's spoken on this issue would agree with you. So um, the American Medical Association, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, every major medical association to speak on the issue of drug use and pregnancy agrees that criminalization and policing are not the best approach to drug use and pregnancy, and that in fact, criminalizing drug use simply deters people from accessing the healthcare that they and their families need. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, absolutely. It is about control of, of women, of people who are pregnant and is a piece of the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. There was recently, um, well, uh, uh, two months ago, I guess, well, well, January 3rd, I guess, is when it was reported. So a couple months ago, um, the California Supreme Court was asked to intervene in Chelsea's case, and they declined to intervene. You're an attorney. What does that mean? That doesn't, I've, I'm, I'm astute enough to understand that just because they declined to intervene doesn't mean that they necessarily think that what's happening is appropriate or good or even legal. They just don't have the reason to intervene. But you're the attorney. Explain that to us and what that uh, 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 lack of intervention from the Supreme Court means in the Chelsea Becker case. Yeah. So you're exactly right that um, it does not mean that the Supreme Court disagrees with us or disagrees with the Attorney General who has explicitly stated to both the Intermediate Appellate Court and the Supreme Court of California and publicly that he thinks this prosecution is a misapplication of the law and should not be proceeding. Um, this, so Supreme Courts, like the, the federal Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of California does not hear every case that comes before it. Um, and it decides which cases to take and when to take them. And typically um, the Supreme Court would only review cases which are final. So after they've completed a trial, a decision has been made um, and it is appealed. Ms. Becker's case is not at that stage. We have not gone to trial yet and we have asked the trial court and the appellate courts, including the Supreme Court, to say this prosecution is not in accordance with the law in California and should be dismissed without any further evidence. And the Supreme Court declined to, 
to intervene at this very early stage. Um, it explicitly said in its order that it's, um, when it declined to review the case at this stage, that is without prejudice, which means we can go back um, at later stages of the proceedings, and we plan to do that. I think that in this case, um, as a layperson to see it, where my brain goes is what what is this prosecutor thinking of? Is he does he have an agenda? Is he I mean, usually you see this with prosecutors who are courting a particular uh, voter block or something like that for future. Is is do you know enough about that prosecutor to know whether that's uh, some sort of personal motivation on his part or is this a trend that's happening um, that we need to know about and be aware of? So this is the second case brought on really these same facts um, within the past couple years by this prosecutor. Um, same prosecutor, same judge, mm. same um, assigned first first assigned defense attorney before we joined this case. Um, and so it seems that he's really just taken it upon himself to um, pursue pregnant people who are using drugs and potentially struggling with a substance use disorder. Um, and that is something that we see across the country. Um, for example, Wisconsin has a really egregious law um, passed in 1997 um, terms, the Unborn Child Protection Act, which allows the state to arrest, force into medical treatment, uh, put on house arrest, uh, subject a pregnant person to a different adult's medical decision-making. Um, on the suspicion that she's consuming alcohol or drugs during her pregnancy um, or has used alcohol or substances in the past. Has used? <laughs> wow. And, and yeah, again, I'm no expert in this, but if, I, if my reading is accurate, um, yes, there are certain stages, especially early in pregnancy, where an abundance of alcohol is definitely harmful, but the jury is out and a lot of physicians and researchers believe that a drink here or there when you're pregnant is not definitely going to cause harm to your fetus. So who are these uh, saviors of all women pregnant who think they know more than the, than the science. I mean, we, especially now, we live in an age where every every time we turn on the news, we're hearing about science, science, science. And yet I'm wondering if people really understand what science means. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I, I would say, I think, unfortunately we live in an age where science and scientific expertise and research is really challenged and, um, is not understood or followed or respected by a lot of members of our society. And we see that as people mm -hmm. reject the idea that we are in a global pandemic and that there are measures that we can take, including wearing masks that would help us as a society and community be mm -hmm. safer and slow the spread. Um, we see that, you know, with climate change and we certainly see that in this area. Um, there are a lot of misconceptions about drug use and about how drug use affects a developing pregnancy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from the 1980s, there was this myth that um, children exposed to crack cocaine before birth would have these long-term developmental, physical and cognitive um, impacts. And that has been fully debunked. And yet we see the same types of arguments made about cocaine, about opioids, these, this oxytots, and certainly about methamphetamine. And I think what you cited about alcohol um, certainly is right 
for my understanding, although I'm not a doctor or medical researcher, um, but we know that large amounts of alcohol, some amount of large amounts of alcohol can cause fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, um, long-term effects. Similarly, cigarettes, there's a some percentage of um, children who are exposed to nicotine um, prior to their birth um, who have long-term effects from that. We don't criminalize those in the same way mm-hmm. as we criminalize cocaine, opioids, methamphetamine. Well, which except just have the same negative impacts. Except what I'm hearing you say about the Wisconsin law is it sounds like they're trying to do that, not about the cigarettes, but about any kind of alcohol, any kind, you know. The whole thing, uh, the whole situation baffles me because, again, you know, we feel that we should have control over our own bodies. There are many things in our culture where we don't have control. Society says, no, you can't have control. Um, And so to play devil's advocate here, um, society says, no, you can't drive your car without a seatbelt because the cost to society is too great. Um, So it sounds to me, I'm trying to work this out uh, to be logical. Um, So it sounds to me like what this prosecutor or people like this prosecutor are saying is, oh, well, um, somehow or other, I believe that there is enough science. uh, It could be junk science, but whatever. I I believe that there's evidence that if this person uses this drug, then there's a high cost to society because her child will be um, disabled or whatever. Um, And so therefore, that's how I justify going after this person, even though, you know, let's face it, our country has a rich history of controlling ourselves, you know, calling the, calling our own shots, but not somehow when it comes to pregnancy and women. Interesting. Are, are, are you and I the only people who have seen this, <laughs> who have drawn those dots together here? I mean, um, so. I, I actually would say, um, I think you're giving the prosecutor a lot of credit about um, having a really robust theory of any kind, even if it is based on junk science. And what I suspect underpins all of these laws um, and prosecutions, whether Chelsea Becker's, whether um, this law in Wisconsin and elsewhere across the country is this push to have fertilized eggs, embryos and fetuses recognized as having rights equal to or greater than pregnant people. And, um, you know, we, I think have been hearing a lot about um, concerns about Roe versus Wade being overturned now with our new Supreme Court. And that is a concern. And even with Roe on the books, we know that most people are not able to access an abortion if they want one. Mm -hmm. And hundreds of people are criminally prosecuted for they're being pregnant or for pregnancy outcomes, even with Roe on the books. We, um, NAPW documented between 1973 and 2005, 413 um, arrests based on pregnancy. And since 2005, over 800, we know that those are undercounts because there's no one law that people are um, prosecuted under based on their pregnancy or pregnancy outcome. Um, So I think it's really about trying to establish fetuses as having rights and um, controlling women Mm -hmm. and controlling pregnant people through our government systems. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't gone away. 
You know, that has not gone away over all these decades of progression in women's rights and, you know, women becoming more powerful, which they have um, over the decades. But for some reason, we still, we, meaning society, our, our, our large chunk of society, um, still has this compulsion to protect the baby, to protect the fetus. Um, and I, I can understand that, you know, I can understand it. Um, but quite honestly, when I have seen it in cases like this, and it, somehow it has less to do with protecting the baby than making a name for myself or having political clout. Um, I, it never seems to be a pure motive in, in so many of these cases. That's just my personal observation. You don't really have to comment on, on how right or wrong I am on that one. Well, I, I would if you don't mind. No, um, you go right ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. And so we see in, for example, um, Alicia Beltran's case in Wisconsin and also Tammy Lachers, they were arrested and incarcerated on an allegation that they were using drugs during their pregnancy. They each stopped before they went to their medical provider and said, I think I'm pregnant. Can you check? Also, can you tell me if my baby's okay, because I did consume some substance before I realized I was pregnant. They were both arrested and um, put in jail. And then Alicia uh, Beltran was put in um, forced medical treatment where neither of them received prenatal care. <laughs> so it is clearly not about the health of fetuses, the health of future babies. It is not about protecting our children. It is about policing people for behavior that we don't like. And we know- Well, excuse me. It's about policing women. Uh, it, it, let's be honest. You know, it's about policing women. And- Yes, I think um, I want to acknowledge that not everyone who gets pregnant is a woman. Um, but yes, a lot of the policing is driven by um, patriarchal ideas and um, the, the wish to control women, definitely. And I just want to add that we know that this policing is different based on race, based on class, um, based on social situation. And um, something that really strikes me about Chelsea Becker's case is she experienced a stillbirth, a full-term stillbirth mm. with a baby that she wanted. And if she were a friend of ours, that would be a tragedy. And that would be treated as a tragedy, which it is, that she was pregnant, she wanted this baby, and at term, she experienced a stillbirth. And in these cases, there is never space made for that tragedy. It is about if you are poor, if you're a person of color, if you're someone who uses drugs, it is about finding blame, criminally prosecuting you, um, policing through the so-called child welfare system, I would say better called family regulation system. Um, it's about blame if you're in a category of people that's policed. If you're not, it's a tragedy. Well, I would argue it's a tragedy anyway, but I understand what you're saying. It's perceived as such. One of the things that I want to come back to that you were talking about is, first of all, how did the prosecutors learn that Chelsea had experienced a stillbirth and had used drugs in the past? How did they learn? Yeah. So that she was reported by the hospital where she went, um, she was hemorrhaging and um, went to the hospital on an emergency basis. And 
um, was reported by the hospital. And that's what we see um, in a lot of cases. And I think is a big part of medical associations pushing for decriminalization because we want people to go get healthcare mm -hmm. if they're having an emergency. And this type of um, response really deters people from getting the healthcare that they need or bringing family members for the healthcare that they need. Well, it's also distressing to me. Um, you know, I tend to be, uh, you know, kind of an old goat, you know, <laughs> and my, my children always say, I'd like to know what kind of a world you baby boomers grew up in. Um, but it it's true. And I see every time I go to the doctor, I have to, you know, sign the thing that I acknowledge the HIPAA rules on confidentiality. Um, how come they can suspend that? Um, for taking drugs. Now, I know they can suspend that for gunshots, etc. But when did it become okay for suspending HIPAA rules when it came to prior drug use? Yeah, um, that's a really big issue and one that I would not present myself as an expert on. But um, we're friends here. You can just give I, an opinion. <laughs> thank you. Um, but non-consensual drug testing of people at their birth or of babies at their birth is quite common. And um, again, it's often if you are either in a small community and known in that community to be someone who uses drugs um, or in a city, if you're a person of color, if you're black, Mm -hmm. um, you're much more likely to have that type of testing. Um, in New York City right now, um, the Human Rights Commission is investigating several hospitals around the city for this type of um, non-consensual drug testing at birth, differentially of people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, to your point that you were surprised that this is happening in California, these issues happen everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems like it's the deep South, you know, the Bible belt, if you will, uh, that seems to get, uh, you know, most of the stories out there. I think that it's the point you're making is very important because I do think that sometimes we tend to think, oh, well, California, Wisconsin, whatever, New York, you know, these things don't happen there. It's just in these other places where it's happening. So I appreciate that point. Um, the other woman that this particular uh, prosecutor had um, um, nailed for using uh, uh, drug use um, before a, a stillbirth, she's actually in jail. She's serving an 11 year sentence. Does this woman have, or does Chelsea uh, Becker have do they have other children? Do you know? Yeah, so Adora Perez um, is the other woman who was charged with murder after experiencing a stillbirth, also on the theory that um, she used methamphetamine during her pregnancy and maybe, you know, in the prosecutor's mind, even though it's not supported by medical evidence, that that caused her stillbirth. Um, she is serving 11 years in prison. She's um, now represented um, only recently. Um, this, this happened in 2018, um, but she is now represented and, and we um, coordinate with her um, attorneys now because the cases are legally so um, similar, mm -hmm. um, but they are working on her release. Um, yes, and, and they're both mothers. They both have children. So the concern is about the baby who doesn't exist rather than the existing children um, and their mothers. That I find that very ironic, I guess. Um, in this same situation, I'm looking at this trend, and, and I told you when we started that I would like to discuss what this means more globally than just for these particular women that we've been discussing. And quite honestly, following this logic, 
if I decide to go out in a snowstorm when I'm pregnant and play in the snow and I get lost and I end up with a stillbirth, um, could I be prosecuted uh, because I didn't follow someone else's idea of a good rule um, for the, the fetus that I was carrying? I, I, I mean, yes. that may be a ridiculous example, but that's who gets to decide what are the risky behaviors that merit punishment? Unfortunately, I don't think it's an absurd example. And, you know, we see, we've seen people prosecuted for driving without a seatbelt while pregnant, for falling down the stairs while pregnant, oh. for um, a woman in Mississippi um, got in an argument outside of a store and she was shot. Someone else shot her in the stomach. That person was not criminally prosecuted. She was criminally prosecuted for putting herself in a dangerous situation while pregnant. Oh, oh my. So these things are not, you know, your example, unfortunately, I don't think is absurd. And it, um, it is so much up to the discretion of an individual prosecutor. And we see it all over the country. Tell me about the National uh, Association. I'm trying to get your name right because I know the acronym, but <laughs> National Advocates for Pregnant Women. How did it get started? And how long has it been in existence? How many of you are involved? Where does it get its funding? And how do you choose cases that you become involved with? Yeah, I, I think I can answer some of those questions. <laughs> Quick, we have three minutes. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding you. <laughs> so the National Advocates for Pregnant Women has been around for about 20 years. It was founded by um, Lynn Paltrow, who is our executive director. And she um, had many years of experience prior to um, starting an APW, first at the ACLU and then um, at the newly formed Center for Reproductive Rights. And as you might know, those, those organizations obviously are doing great work and are really focused on protecting the right to abortion. And what Lynn saw is that there are all of these other cases of people facing infringements on their civil rights, on their human rights, on their liberty, on their bodily autonomy, medical decision-making, ability to be whole humans because they're pregnant or because they have the capacity for pregnancy. And, and something I should note is that technically the Wisconsin law um, allows the type of control I described um, for fertilized eggs. So any person, <laughs> any person with the capacity for pregnancy who's sexually active technically could be taken in under this law. And hopefully we wouldn't see that level, but the fact that it's even within the law is absurd. And so anyway, Lynn saw that there are all of these cases of people's liberty being infringed upon because they're pregnant or because of their capacity for pregnancy and sought to fill that gap. So um, formed National Advocates for Pregnant Women um, around uh, 2000. There, we were a small team. Um, we've grown recently. And so I think we're now a staff of 12 um, with, four full-time attorneys. Um, and so we unfortunately have a limited capacity um, to represent people in individual cases. Our work often um, centers around advising people who are the direct attorneys for someone facing this type of um, charge and doing broader advocacy education work, connecting medical experts with um, those defense attorneys um, and trying to serve as the bridge and, and, and provide the arguments that 
one could bring against these cases. And in terms of individual cases, how we choose, I think it, it really depends um, on the case, on the state, on um, what we see sort of the trends in that particular area. For a woman who might be, or a person who's pregnant who might be in this situation, are there some general guidelines? I mean, can you go to a hospital and say, no, I refuse this particular test, or no, I don't, uh, you know, I, I will not give you permission to take a blood test from the fetus or something like that. Do you, what are, are the rights um, when a, a person is potentially facing this situation? Yeah, so um, NAPW and um, the BRBA, the Birth Rights Bar Association, um, jointly published a guide last year called the Birth Rights Resource that's available on our website. Um, and that document tries to provide just the type of guidance you're asking for. Um, so practical guidance for people who um, are wondering how should I approach my provider? How should I approach giving birth? Um, what are my rights? And not all rights are unfortunately equal and um, people are in different positions to advocate for their rights depending on their situation, um, depending on their provider, depending on their relationship with their provider, depending on um, many social and situational factors. So um, I think we acknowledge that not everyone it, it might not be the best choice for everyone to assert um, the full breadth of their rights um, in every situation. Um, I think the resource is probably the best um, source for folks. Okay, but... can you cite that again, please? The BRBA, which stands for? Yeah, the um, National Advocates for Pregnant Women and the Birth Rights Bar Association. Okay, and um, the, but, is the birth uh, rights resource, and it's yeah. available on your website. Yes, um, for people who would like it, I would like to see that just because I, I I see this obviously. You know, I'm I'm mostly concerned right now, especially in this interview, about what this means um, in these particular cases. You know, uh, birth cases, but I'm also concerned because. I, I, I see it as an erosion of everyone's right, everybody's rights, you know, to protect themselves. I, I, it's, it's invasive, but I'm prickly, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, I get a, an annual thing from my insurance company wanting me to fill out this information and I'm going, no, you know, no. You, you know, I go to my doctor, I don't go to my insurance company for healthcare. You're just there to pay for it, leave me alone. You know, if I need a doctor, I'll go to my doctor and I'll select the doctor that I can work with. Uh, so I tend to be pretty prickly. I, I don't uh, sit back and just go, oh, okay. You know, I think we need to be very selective about who we share information with, especially health information. And I think we need to be picky about those people that we go to. Not everybody has the ability to be picky, though, um, depending on their circumstances. Um, so I, I think, I guess what I'm saying is, is that I, I, I would hope that there's some organization somewhere that would help um, uh, people find resources where their privacy, I, there, there's always such a delicate balance, a delicate, delicate little walk between protecting society and the individual's rights. I mean, that's not new. It's, you know, we've been dealing with it for, you know, 250 years. Um, but it seems to me that we're starting to fall over toward one side, especially when it comes to some of our most private things like this. Um, so if somebody's considering being pregnant and they know that they have perhaps a history of drug use or a history of this, that, or the other thing that might be interpreted, um, negatively, if a provider knew about, is there some sort of resource, um, to help them select a provider or, um, for their community? I don't know what I'm really asking here. I hope you're getting a feel for it. I see you nodding. So I'm, I'm hoping that you're getting a feel for what I'm trying to get at here. Yeah. So 
I mean, just to respond to a couple of things you said, I think absolutely this, this type of reaction undermines the type of confidential medical care that we all deserve and is the best form of medical care that we as a country should be aspiring to. And, you know, you're saying that you're a little prickly about um, your privacy and sharing your personal information, but so are many of us. Mm -hmm. And um, as a country, we have such a focus on our individual rights, our individual liberties, our privacy, um, and somehow not in this area. And I think you've really pinpointed um, a lot of the reason for that being policing of women, control of women, um, in addition to advocacy for so-called fetal rights. In terms of um, how people should pick providers and um, go about that process, it is really challenging. And um, it's so individual and so specific to, um, to where you live. And so word of mouth, frankly, is probably the best route to understand um, which providers really will be an ally and which providers um, won't. But it's a challenge. Um, even, you know, we've been talking a lot about the context of people who are pregnant and use drugs, but another area of NAPW's work is um, forced medical interventions in the course of pregnancy or at a birth. And there's a case um, that was in Staten Island, New York. Um, a woman had was a mother, had previously given birth by C-section and wanted to pursue a vaginal birth in this instance. And she did her research about providers and found a provider that had a lower than usual rate of um, using C-sections and um, who it seemed would consider and permit a, a vaginal birth after a C-section. And they did not. And the thing that I find most egregious about her case specifically, and, and her name's Renat Dre, and, and, and there's been a lot of publicity around her case, so you could research more if you're interested, um, is the doctor explicitly said and wrote in her chart, woman has decision-making capacity. I am overruling it and decided against her will, against her explicit wishes to perform a C-section on her. And, you know, we talk about C-sections as something that are very common, which, you know, they are to an extent, but it's also major surgery. Mm -hmm. It is surgery where your abdomen is being cut open. And for someone's choice in that to be taken from them is a really, major and invasive thing. Um, and it turns out in this case, the Staten Island University Hospital had an explicit policy regarding maternal refusal, um, which is, you know, a, a, a woman is refusing care um, that is recommended for whatever reason. Um, that allowed for this doctor to make this decision. And those policies typically aren't public and are very, very hard to get, even as someone who's receiving care at that facility. Um, so, you know, we've filed a, a Freedom of Information Act request um, for those types of policies at various hospitals around New York. Um, but again, this is a, a nationwide issue that many other people could also work on and um, really causes this type of problem for people who are trying to give birth in the way that they want to. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting to me that what happened to the right to refuse? What happened to the, you know, I, I, my, my daughter 
whom I gave birth to. Um, uh, I had two children that were both three weeks overdue. And I was given the choice with the first one. Well, we could induce, we could do a cesarean, we could do this. If we let nature take its course, because the baby's getting so large, you'll probably end up with a C-section. We could induce, but honestly, if we induce, you have a greater risk of C-section. So how do you want to handle this? I, I chose to let nature take its course, and I did end up with a C-section because I had an 11-pound, 2-ounce baby. Um, <laughs> but my daughter, who recently um, uh, gave birth, uh, was uh, told to schedule a cesarean two days before her due date, and her baby was seven pounds something, you know, perfectly normal. Of course, mine would have been if they were two days before their due date, too. Um, but I said, well, why did you choose this? And she said, why? Well, I didn't choose this. And I said, well, you could have gone on. And she said, no, I couldn't. They won't let you. And I went, what? You know, that's like saying you won't let your hair grow. How could they stop you? But in talking with you, I'm thinking they probably could have. Well, I would I would say that's a little bit of a complex issue. I do think many hospitals and even prior to COVID, but increasingly so during COVID have really tried to schedule births and control mm -hmm. um, when people give birth. Um, in order to be able to have that predictability um, for when people might be in the hospital um, mm -hmm. during COVID. And I'm sure there is an element of concern about malpractice suits mm -hmm. um, if they don't intervene earlier or it, it creates some risk, um, mm -hmm. but as you mentioned, inducing has its own risks and C-sections certainly have their own risks. Mm -hmm. And um, for Renat Dre, those risks came true. They, um, she had a complication in her C-section and they damaged her bladder possibly permanently. Mm -hmm. um, and in a major surgery that she didn't want. Um, so, it's not clear to me that the type of interventions that they're um, pursuing really protect them from um, risks any more than allowing nature to take its course or allowing people to make the choices that are right for them and for their families. Yeah. I think we, uh, we have, it's kind of endemic in our culture right now that we get a little bit of knowledge and so we, whether you're a politician or a decision maker or even just next door neighbor, we feel that we know um, because we have a little bit of knowledge. Um, I suspect that most of the people, especially in the hospitals that are making decisions like this, think they're doing it for the best. Most people are good people. Most people you know, are trying to do that. We talked earlier about political motivations and things and in other cases, but I think it's a general rule that most people think they're doing what's best um, for themselves, for a culture, for other people, for, you know, whatever. I don't think there's evil intent um, by having the hospital say, oh, we need to have you do a cesarean. There might be, but I mean, I don't think it's a general rule. Um, but it concerns me because we have a little bit of information about someone or some situation or what it, and yet that little bit of information is used to make major decisions that affect other people's lives. Um, not just in this case, but in so many cases. And that really distresses me. I, I don't know where that's going to go. I, I hope at some point it reverses a little bit um, because I see it. As I said, I think it's endemic right now in, in our culture. Samantha, we've talked a long time. We've talked a lot about uh, Chelsea Becker. Uh, I see we're coming up uh, on, on the uh, end of the show here. And I wanted to ask you, did, was there anything that I forgot to ask you or that I should have asked you that you think is relevant to our discussion? Thank you for that question. I, I did just want to add to... Um what you just said about our small amount of information really impacting 
um, a lot of decisions that affect a lot of people that we have a really high C-section rate for a developed country, possibly the highest. Mm -hmm. And we have a really high maternal mortality rate. So whatever we're doing is not, isn't the right thing for people's health and healthy mm -hmm. outcomes. Um, Can I interrupt you right now? What is the infant mortality rate? When I had my babies um, 10 years ago, um, it was, I, I actually drafted a will while I was pregnant, um, had it done because I realized the statistics at that point were that I had a one in 5,000 chance of dying because of giving birth. What is that rate now? Do you know? I don't know, um, the maternal, maternal mortality rate nationwide, but, um, I'm sure we could look it up and send it. If oh, that's okay. That's okay. I just wondered if it had gone up or gone down or stayed about the same. So. Yeah, um, I, I think we've covered a lot of ground today. Mm -hmm. I, the, the primary thing I think I would just really emphasize is that any law that criminalizes the death of, the, of a fetus will be turned against pregnant people for their own um, pregnancy outcomes. And mm -hmm. um, the statistic I do know <laughs> off the top of my head is that um, 15 to 20% of all pregnancies end in a miscarriage or a stillbirth. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of cases of people being open to criminal prosecution for something that they can't control. And um, as we know, no person can guarantee a good pregnancy outcome or a, a healthy baby at the end of a pregnancy. And there's lots of debate about um, what you should and should not do. And there's people who do all of the non-recommended things and have totally healthy babies. And there's mm -hmm. people who do all of the right things and have a stillbirth. Yes. And um, so we really need to turn away from these types of criminal and other prosecutions and focus on providing comprehensive, available, confidential medical care. To mm -hmm. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Samantha, if somebody wants to contact um, the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, where do they go? What is the website? Yeah, um, they can visit advocatesforpregnantwomen.org. Um, I think you can also go to napw.org and it will get you to the same spot. Um, and you can reach us through there and we have um, many resources, fact sheets about these issues, the birth rights resource that we mentioned um, mm -hmm. all on that website. Great. You provide a wonderful service. Thank you for educating us. Um, I, I appreciate it. Um, even though I'm prickly, I appreciated it. <laughs> and um, um, I will keep an eye out on the Chelsea Baker case because, uh, wow, you know, I mean, what a thing. What a thing. Thank you uh, for coming on the show. Thank you for talking with us. I hope you'll come again uh, and let us know how the uh, Chelsea Becker case is resolved or when there are other cases that you think the public should be aware of. I appreciate your time. And thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your Valley community radio station. Join us for Northwest Phenomenon Sunday nights at 7 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9 as we cover topics from paranormal activity, conspiracy theories, and more. If you have a story you would like to share, email me, mario at northwestphenomenon.com. We'll see you Sunday nights at 7 p.m. right here on Valley 104.9. Northwest Phenomenon. You're alone in the car. You don't know why. You're just not sure. There was something up there. Something out there. You heard it. You saw the eyes. The radio was on. It was 
Desert Oracle Radio on Valley 104.9 Community Radio, Sundays at 8 p.m. Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Welcome to Happy News. I'm Daisy Oz. In this episode, I'll be talking about growing kids' confidence for their greater happiness. In the book, Kid Confidence, Help Your Child Make Friends, Build Resilience, and Develop Real Self-Esteem, author Eileen Kennedy Moore encounters kids struggling with low self-esteem. Somehow, some kids are equating self-worth with being impressive. So she says that the key to fostering healthy self-esteem isn't to try to convince children that they're great, but to help them soften harsh self-judgment and connect with something bigger than themselves, and to reduce self-focus by practicing what she calls a quiet ego. Some examples of a quiet ego state are mindfulness, a focus on the present moment without judgment. Several studies have found that children as young as preschool age who took school-based mindfulness meditation programs had less stress and aggression, plus greater cognitive performance. Parents can also role model more mindfulness to inspire their kids. Next is flow, a state of being completely immersed in a project or learning experience that challenges us. You may observe your child immersed in flow while building Legos, drawing, shooting baskets, or studying bugs. Flow happens when kids are so engaged that they lose track of time and are utterly unselfconscious. By encouraging children to engage in uninterrupted activities, they can experience flow, where time stands still. Another quiet ego state is compassion, a concern for those who are suffering and the desire to help. To build compassion, parents can role model actions by how they respond to others' suffering. Children can also care for their friends' well-being or get involved in volunteer work. And finally, she elucidates on the sentiment of awe, a feeling of wonder and amazement that comes in the presence of something bigger than ourselves. Children might catch a taste of awe by watching the sunset, seeing animals in the wild, or gazing at the night stars. Introducing more mindfulness, flow, compassion, and awe into their lives helps children ease away from constant self-evaluation and empathize with others more. Being able to let go of the question, am I good enough, opens children up to creating a richer, fuller life. I'd like to leave you with a happy quote. To the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you may be the world. Dr. Seuss. My source for Kid Confidence came from the Greater Good Science Center. I'm Daisy Oz. Thanks for listening. And I want you to be happy. Check out my archive shows and more at daisyoz.com. Happy News is produced at Daisy Oz Productions in Chewila, Washington. My theme music was provided by John Bartman. Extinction Diaries. The sawfish is an amazing-looking creature. They are shark-like rays that have unusual long, narrow noses banded with external rows of teeth that look like a saw blade. The blade emits an electric current that detects prey, and they can grow up to 25 feet long. For millions of years, they have roamed the planet's coastal waters. Now, an alarming 2021 published study has revealed that at least one of five known sawfish species has disappeared off 45 of the 90 countries that fish them. Two species are missing from 28 of those countries, and all five species are endangered. Once again, the culprit is overfishing. The teeth on the sawfish's blade easily get caught in nets. Those blades are sold as novelties and spurs for cockfighting. Tragically, the sawfish fins are the most valuable of all in the shark fin trade. Strict penalties for catching them is one solution. Only one half dozen countries truly protect them. Also, protecting and expanding habitats they can thrive in, like mangroves, is a step that has to be taken. Scientists feel there is still hope to restore the sawfish populations, but the world must act. My name is Arne Oliveira, and this is a Small World Radio production. Hi everybody, this is Jay Fisk, host of Keeping Track of Giving Back in the Valley. We're the show that's on every week, and we talk about nonprofits that help all of us who live, work, and play here in the fabulous Snoqualmie Valley. You can catch us at 5.30 p.m. on Sunday, and then we do an encore presentation on Monday at 6.30 p.m. That's 5.30 Sunday evening and 6.30 on Monday for Keeping Track of Giving Back in the Valley, right here on Valley 104.9 FM. Radio Survivor is our weekly show where we feature stories and interviews on community radio, radio history, podcasting, low-power FM, college radio, and more. Radio Survivor, 
on Valley 104.9 FM, 6 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday nights.